0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Today is uh, Friday, October 29th, 2021. I'm here with uh, David Levy and Sandra Kirk. And uh, so I'm very excited to be here with you to discuss your book towards uh, economics of natural equals. Um, You guys are superstars in the field of history of economic thought. And so I wanna ask you some questions about that field as well. um, And and the way in which um, the field is evolving now that we have more access to digital resources and, and everything. So we'll get to that as well. But let me start by asking you a question about the uh, crucial episode in the Virginia School, which is the Ford Foundation discussions and how that um, forces Buchanan in many ways to respond by discussing these two different types of economics or two different approaches to economics. Um, And that's played throughout your book, these two different types of economics. And so there's many different uh you know entry ways that you could maybe talk about that but you know uh have at it which is how can you explain the, these fundamental differences between these two approaches to economics and what are their implications for the way we do economics the way we think about economists
2: yeah so that's a great question that's, i'll jump in first and i'm sure david can answer it better than i can but um the the way I like to think of it, and I think we tried to frame it in the book, is um, Jim's talking about an engineering approach. Uh, he talks about um, you know, the social welfare uh, approach, um, the approach where economists um, determine what we're supposed to be doing. Um, we, all of us in an economy, uh, and that expert then sets up the problem and solves it and um, then imposes it on people. Um, the other way, which is the Virginia School way, is a sort of bottom-up way where we have our own private goals and it's much more messy. We, you know, sort of muddle through life as best we can, optimizing but um, you know uh, pursuing our private goals. Uh, and and what I think is really interesting about the contrast is in the Virginia School, you're not imposing things on people. Um, the expert isn't the all-knowing person who sorts out what it is people are supposed to be doing, but uh, instead lets people pursue their private goals.
3: I remember when I absorbed the Jim's letter to Kermit Gordon that I lamented that it had not been published widely. Yeah, it was in an annual report, as you know, that got reprinted in an annual report, but that's it as far as I know. But this is really the the great statement of the Virginia School. Now, I have a very odd <laughs> life experience. And so when I came to... Work at George Mason, I had been working as an applied econometrician and I had discovered what's known in the trade as exploratory data analysis, right? And that is, as you do your estimation, you try to find out what's in the model. And then when I read that and all of us, everything fits together and that is because the first great statement of what is now called exploratory data analysis is Rutledge Vining. <laughs> this is Vining. And so the question is, the debate is Vining versus Koopmans. And, and, you know, and so it's, a, it's not political. I have no idea what Koopmans politics are. I don't really know what Vining's politics, I sort of. But it's Vining versus Koopmans. And Koopmans is a great man. When Koopmans' collect- papers were collected, he included Vining's objections, and so that the Vining question and he, the defense of the National Bureau was to say, "Look, what the National Bureau was doing is discovering hypotheses, and so, so, and so that the, the what Jim was describing is a." discovery process so we understand what social we have to discover what social goals are and so you know so you formulated as binding versus coupons all of a sudden it's non-political it's and and the 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 debate on over exploratory data analysis whatever that's open question I mean this is this is how the lines in the profession line up and so it's not and so it it hooks into the larger larger literature, I remember there was a, a Sandy at a party at one, before one of the summer institute and Kevin Hoover was there, I think. And Kevin was talking about how, you know, these really aren't Keynesian models that people talk about, they're Koopman's models. And so, yeah, that's right. And so that if we, you know, position ourselves, I mean, yeah, we're not gonna get any rap videos <laughs> <laughs> Viney versus coupons—that is not going to work. But but it hooks to the professional discussions. It, you know, okay, what, what where is does this fit in the professional It's Right there, it's right there. Do we come to the we come to the world with a full model, or do we have to discover the model?
2: And uh, just to follow up on that a little bit, um, so you have a model, you impose it on the data, or you have a model and you impose it on people. Right, And then you, you know, when the data don't do what you want them to, or the people don't do what you want them to, you massage the data, or you massage the people. Um, So there's a real interesting parallel there.
1: Yeah, I love the way you just put that, Sandy, they, uh, you know, that's one of the things that really comes out in your book, um, which I think is is quite fascinating, which is that um, Jim understood that at Virginia Tech, when he was being challenged by the other economists internally, that was a methodological dispute. Yep. Yep. Um, I think you you know he was the you know they were a little shocked that in UVA people were misunderstanding a methodological dispute with an ideological dispute, and they you know they what I guess in in, the, in today's uh, language or whatever, Buchanan in these letters is basically saying, um, you aren't seeing me, right? Like how you are talking about me is not me. Yeah. I don't know what you're, what you're, what you're missing. And, and he even goes, we'll come back to this later, I think. But as, as you guys know, you know, he even has these lines where he's like, I have been very conscious not to have the people that you think I am be part of our group. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a very telling statement that he makes as a young, you know, he's, he's not, he's an established, but he's not a senior established person yet. He's kind of that mid career, you know, kind of on the ascendancy thing. And he's making that argument, you know, 10, 10 to 15 years out from his PhD, not 30 years out from his PhD. It's kind of fascinating to see how people could swing and miss on the difference between the methodological issues and the analytical issues and the ideological issues, and I think they still do. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, you know, and so as a result, they don't see the other side, yeah. You know, for what it's making. I mean, I have my own biases, no doubt, and so I see the Buchanan side more than I see, yeah. you know, the Koopman side or whatever. But yeah. um, this interaction effect of the what you're talking about, uh, you know, these two different views. So the social engineering versus the social understanding, the the uh, you know uh, democratic politics ruled by experts, democratic politics ruled by discussion. The linkage between those things is is very intimate in a in a serious way. Yeah. That's
3: great. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, let me let me let me follow up on the Sandy's point about this massaging the people, massaging it. We don't, I mean, people don't think about coast in Virginia, but coast is joke or maybe it's a theorem it's is you know how how econometricians work is you torture the data until they confess right that is that's vining this is pure vining and so you know through this putting coast you know no coupons not chicago right no 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 we know we don't know all about this but and when you start, when you, when, the, when the poles are vining in coupons, then it's sort of interesting where other folks line up. I mean, oh, and you know, one of the, and it's something weird happened at Virginia. I spent more time than I care to remember trying to find photographs of vining. Uh, the best the archivists could do was two uh, basically unusable pictures. You know, little group shots. Just they're just terrible. Uh, uh, UVA doesn't have Vining's papers. Um, hmm. he, his uh, discussion with his son is things were got very na- things were very bad. So I, you know, it's just one of these. What is going on? And so it's just again, if you think about Vining, Vining's not political. He's in the usual sense, you know, he's a liberal of of a sort, I guess. Um, But so that there's, there's a complex complication there, which doesn't map to simple ideology.
1: You know, it's interesting with Vining, just to finish up that thought, because, you know, I was a graduate student in taking Jim's class. It's before Jim wins the Nobel Prize. So he's so I'm in his class, and he, and Vining's book, Assessing Economic Systems, comes out. You know, which is after all these years, and Cambridge finally brings it out. And all Buchanan talks about is that this is the most important book. You need to read it. There's two two book recommendations from Buchanan, which. I tried to follow up on it. In both instances, I was completely lost in reading on my own unless Buchanan told me what was in the book. Um, The other one was the Increasing Returns book by the Zhang guy or whatever later, you know, I can't remember his name, but, uh, you know, later on when his book came out when I, you know, about how you do redo economics uh, based on increasing returns and how I should be paying attention to this um but when vining's book came out the way jim summed it up or at least the way i got it the cliff note version at the time was that we never pick between particular distributions but always over rules of the game which engender a pattern of exchange production and distribution and so in a lot of ways this is again him summarizing up the exchange paradigm versus the allocation paradigm and the linkages between that and the engineering paradigm and uh, you know the social understanding paradigm, or all these other things, is really just amazing to me. I think, and um, and your book does such a great job of articulating what all of those ideas are. And the multiplicity—this is going to sound weird back to you guys—but what I get out of this is a multiplicity of urtexts in Buchanan. So you know, the way Wagner writes his book about Buchanan is to focus on 1949. Yeah. Right. But you guys come along and yet 1949 is great, but you know, then also 1959 is like really interesting, right? Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. You know, these other ones. And so I, I think it's just amazing. And, and I, I you know, maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about, that. I mean, this is something Alon is also trying to wrestle with is Buchanan's various efforts to, as he's put it, you know, varied iterations to force alien concepts upon reluctant minds. Yeah. So this gives me my question about the alien nature of it. So my so my second question is, do you have a good reason, assuming away the rents, right? So let's, let's <laughs> oh, assume yeah. away the rents for a minute. I understand, but let's assume away the rents for a minute because it's a little too easy, I think, sometimes to say that they do it, you know, because the rents are good. Uh, so do you have a good reason why an economist of the obvious prestige and respect that Knight had achieved? All right, so like if there was an economist in the United States after let's say John Bates Clark or something that had the it factor, it would be Frank Knight, right? That's the guy walks down the hall. It's like, wow, you know, there's the it factor. And he's such an early, early practitioner in many ways of the view that you're, that you're attributing to Buchanan. um, But why was he so easily dethroned (laughs) from the Mount Olympus by you know, in one sense, his former student, Samuelson, uh, but, you know, other people. And especially, I think, as, as you guys uh, identify, that in many ways, Knight is just carrying forward the Smithian tradition. So like if, if we're Martians and we come to the earth, you know, what does it mean to be an economist? You, know, you think of yourself as a Smithian, 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 and then all of a sudden you're not. What is the, what's going on there? And just to follow up on that, Here's another crazy claim, you know, if you look at Knight's presidential address to the AEA, right? He he identifies Keynes as the culprit, right? But he also says that that these views are anti-democratic, which I think to the progressives that were in the room, they would have thought like, what the hell is he talking about, right? You know, they would have been shocked by it. But at some level, if you read your book closely, that's what it's all about at some level. So, what's going on there, methodologically, and and with our notions of democracy in the twentieth century? That somehow they could get so flipped.
2: Yeah. Go ahead, David.
3: Um, well, I think the fundamental issue from a Smithian point of view, and I think you're exactly right identifying Smith, is that in Smith, you know, philosophers and people are the same. Yes. We in the the sort of the the fortune cookie uh, bumper sticker version is we are who we study
1: yeah
3: and that raises now knight and knight handles that by saying okay to philosophers got to be truth seekers and that carries over to jim and that's not i not eh, maybe we, that's not the best way of doing it I, you know she and i have done a lot of work on Gordon and who doesn't believe that for the (laughs) nanosecond but but so that and so that if we become mathematicians well it's clear that you know mathematicians are not actually the real numbers or non-standard numbers or anything like that no no we're people those are numbers and you know at every place you see in you see these we are who we study. And Stigler has a real funny jokes about that. he said, imagine a chemist was the same as a molecule, right? And then so the molecules come up and say, Hey, we want to, we want to merge with these guys. You no, don't, don't prove these theorems, we're gonna prove that theorem. And so, so that if the Smithy commitment is we are who we study, and that means we've got another complication, and it's a nasty one. It's really, really hard to to deal with deal with that. And um, yeah, I think she and I think that you know Knight failed with a clamping on a truth seeking requirement, but um, although not normatively didn't fail, but it's um, so I think that. That if you go the non-Smithian route, the dimensions of the problems you struggle with shrink. Yeah, they become tractable, and you know, and that's a uh, you know, there's something to be said for that. You know, being able to solve a problem is good, and so, yeah. So,
2: yeah. so, So I-, I
3: think that. So, but I think, but you gotta, you know, you gotta face that. You you gotta I think you gotta face that problem s- straightforward. You can't you can't dock it. You gotta deal with the fact that how do we handle the fact that we're an unusual discipline, that we are who we study. Now, you know, you can make jokes about it. You can say, well, what, what if data could talk, right? Okay, with that <laughs> that's a hysterical paper. I mean, that's just wonderful paper. Uh and and so but the real thing is the, the question about which Gordon raised a long time ago the incentives of the incentives of, of scholars to and one of the things one of the things we, we 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 did not so long ago was the the Stigler's work on the diet problem and one of the things that's just absolutely remarkable is that when Danzig was looking around for a, something to try out a simplex on. The, there's there was previous work on diet problems. The data disappeared. Woost. <laughs> so this is like, mid 1940s. Can't replicate this stuff. But Stigler sent him his data. Stig, you know, you ask Stigler for his data. Your data came by mail. Right. Okay. So that's so that if you believe in that, there's an ethical claim to being an economist. You know, maybe behave ethically. I mean, that could be. That could very well be the case because George shared his data. Always shared his data. Milton shared his data. Always shared his data, and so that you know, you know, so there's this you know saying. Okay, we've got we're working with a with a moral commitment. Uh, is that sufficient? Um, I don't you know I don't think we I don't think so. But but um, but it is true that the Knightians behave real well for data sharing. And at the end of
1: the day, that is, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you in a second, Sandy, I apologize for, but I was just thinking, you know, if you read the rhetoric of economics, McCloskey's big claim at the end is this ethical claim, right? Good science, you know, whatever we call the rules of science, what really matters is the behavior of scientists. At the end of the day, we have to have these moral commitments yeah. to being good, good people or whatever. So yeah. um, that's kind of intriguing. But uh, Sandy, you wanted to jump in.
2: So um, I would say it was not very self-conscious though. It's not as though economists suddenly said, well, we're, we're going to distance ourselves from analytical egalitarianism. We're not going to, you know, we're going to eschew the idea that we're who we, we study and, and behave differently. Um, so uh, David, David sort of gave I think more agency to them than I think actually happened historically. Um, And, and to your original point about, you know, how Knight gets dethroned. I actually, I think David's right. It's Smith who gets dethroned and Knight's a casualty of that. Uh, And, and, and then to my point about not being so self-conscious, you know, I think it was terribly tempting to suddenly become uh, something closer to a physicist, which, had always been what economists or many economists uh, em- wanted to emulate. Um, so, to become more like them and less like a Smithian or a Knightian. Um, and, and you know, it just, it, the entire Smithian, well, maybe not the entire, but much of the Smithian enterprise gets written off as unscientific. Uh, it's not, how, therefore, it's not how you do economics because economics is scientific because it's like physics. And, right. and so, you know, then you just move away from. Uh, from like I said, the Knightian, or you said the Knightian uh, enterprise, and, and the elegance and the precision, as David said, it's fun to solve a problem, right? I mean, it's really fun. Uh, whether whether the solution is is actually means anything it doesn't really matter. It solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but I but the point I wanted to make is, I'm not sure that economists were aware, right. self-consciously aware of the profound change. Uh, that that they were part of. Yeah. Um, um, some of them were. So Buchanan yeah. was, um, and I'm yeah. sure Knight was, and 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 I'm sure there were many others. But I, you know, I think others just went to grad school and then did what they learned in grad school.
1: I think it, you know, you you brought this up, Sandy, actually, in the in your review on my book on Hayek. You know, we have a tendency to want to maybe I have a tendency, but I think a lot of like I have a tendency where we want to slice you know, uh, periods and, and clean points. Yeah. And there's always fuzziness on those edges. So, you know, recently I, you know, with my students talking about this, I've been trying to uh, focus on this A.C. Pagou uh, piece from 1908. Yeah. 1908, right? And Pagou is saying we have to abandon the economist as a philosopher and adopt the economist mindset as a physician, Because it's only if economics has healing power, does it warrant our excitement? Because otherwise, we should look to martyrdom. We should look to, you know, these other, he like mentions all these other things, which man is so much more interesting in than looking at man in the market. Like basically, he's like, he's like, you know, our buying and selling behavior is just not all that romantic. So why the hell would we pay attention to it? The only reason why we pay attention to it is because we can heal it rather than the idea that we could find beauty and awe in it or whatever. And it's kind of at 1908, you know, he's making that argument. And yeah. so that's not like, oh, that just happens. You know, it's slowly creeping, you know, into, yeah. and there's a variety of things. So I think that's, that is right. I have a question for two of you methodologically, econometrically. So um, once COVID hit, I started attending Uh, the uh, seminar at Princeton on the political economy of COVID. And one of the best papers that was given early on was by Asimoglu. And it was on the SIR model and the problem in a population interaction effect. That, you know, we have a model, we postulate it, what the behavior is. And then humans behave differently. And then how do you update the model? But in order to do the testing, they freeze what the behavioral assumption is. And then that started me thinking, well, you know, that sounds like Morgenstern. And when Morgenstern was talking about what he called the theory absorption problem, which goes all the way back to when he was at the Business Cycle Institute and he was criticizing forecasting right? It's like, so you can have a forecast, which ends up by being refuted, because the people listen to the forecast. right? right? And, then they, and, and, and so, you know, <laughs> this theory absorption problem means in some technical sense, right, that the parameters are never fixed, right? They're instead free. And then how do you do economics as a science, quote, unquote, when the parameters are free versus when they're fixed? And I was just wondering if, If you guys had given the Koopman's vining thing, have you also looked at Morgenstern stuff on theory absorption and how do we, has that had any play at all in the literature or that's more to you, David, I guess.
3: Isn't that called rational expectations, right? Isn't that Lucas's point? Is
1: (laughs) Well, I think a part of it is an extreme version, right? But there might be. Yeah, right. Yeah, there might be a little bit more. Lucas's is another mechanical version
2: of it. Oh, no, 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 maybe,
3: Lucas yeah. is a, Lucas an optimist, right? Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
3: yeah, But, you know, this is... But, but, but
2: it is... You know, it, but but
3: there is... One of the things which would be fun to do, um, <laughs> which is to say somebody else, <laughs> is, uh, is put together all of these, all of these sorts of things. I mean, because... I until you mentioned it, I'd absolutely forgotten Morgan Stern's great accuracy book. Which I, I, I when I was working for Trellesky, he was in the crowd, which got the National Bureau crowd, which got really upset with Morgan Stern. That um, uh, so, but the the Morgan Stern, and so that Morgan Stern. Isn't, isn't connected and but you know so it'd be a really useful thing I think if somebody okay. knew enough I mean and I, this is not a joke somebody knew enough to be able to put all of these sorts of things together because when we were doing our book and it, the, the Morgenstern's name just did not enter my head and you know and so that there's a lot of there's a lot of connections. This would this would be a great special issue of the um, Austrian Journal, yeah. right? Would be putting okay. all of these things together in the way that you handle these hard problems. Yeah, is you get about, it gets get knowledgeable people to write on the the what they know a lot about, and then people can learn from this. Collection of specialists who are interested in a a, a topic with family resemblance, and then they yeah. can go from go from there. I mean, we got to start from somewhere, and so you you know. But, you start, start so from David, freedom. you
1: there's no reason for you to remember this, but when I took over the editing of the journal from you know after Rothbard and all that stuff, and they asked me to go do it, uh, my opening foray was to use Joan Robinson. And Oscar Morgenstern's JEL pieces from the, the early 70s talking about how economics had to go forward and, and deal with the unsettled questions and all these things like that. And I was asking, is there a market niche for Austrian economics? And it was in answering Robinson and uh, I argued answering Robinson and uh, Morgenstern's questions. And the reality is is that after all these years, I started doing that in 1998, no (laughs) one picked up that lead. So (laughs) so it might be either because they don't find it interesting because it doesn't lead you to a a, a form of a demonstrative reasoning. But it also might be that we don't have the technical wherewithal to to answer the questions as you're talking about because of predilections and other things. But I think it's very interesting the way you put it. And I've been thinking about it a lot uh, since the confusion of the idea that somehow epidemiology is the same thing as virology yeah, and, yeah. and instead it's it's virology interacting with a human population yeah, which then right. changes the whole way we think about it right, right, Sandy, right. I, Sandy, yeah. you want to I, I cut you off I apologize that's
2: it's okay it's all right um, I was just going to say your point when you started was exactly David's point um, that we're dealing with people right and people are, are becoming as, as Buchanan would put it right there. And and so, you know, you can't, if you fix their responses at some point when you're looking at the data, sure. um, then you've got it wrong because, or you're going to get it wrong. Um, and I think COVID is, has actually demonstrated that. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, but it's really messy. It's
1: messy.
3: Messy. Messy nomics. Well, one of the, one of the, um, things we didn't get to, or did, was that the, I mean, we closed the book on, you know, on, on thinking about what is the Virginia school sort of, why it is it deserve to be revived? And we thought about Jim's response to letter to Kermit Gordon. And, and that, the point is that markets are defensible he thought because they reflect consensus okay so that's 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 interesting and then we said okay well this is gonna this is gonna speak to externalities because instead of doing externalities physically you do on consensus and you know and jim's limits of liberty you know starts with this weird externality problem it's an externality about uh maybe somebody's got a beard Mm -hmm. and that imposes cost on other things. Nobody paid attention to this, but then, but so that if you take externalities as consensus, then all of a sudden this sort of uh, COVID and the mask stuff becomes, oh, that's just, that's, that's a right in Jim's strike zone. Jim can hit that one out of the park. And I don't think, because I don't think people picked up limits of liberty and the they didn't get the externality started that and that's where the limits the, the limits come from i think this is a you know that Jim doesn't work with rights didn't you have a you don't have a right but jim works with consensus and so that's a link to COVID that i don't think has been explored not certainly not by not by us i think and so but anyway, I wish
1: I, I wish I would add that conversation. I, re, I have a paper coming out in Georgetown uh, 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 Journal of Law and Public Policy, and it it's a, all a play on Mill's harm principle yeah. uh, related to this. But I think there's, uh, um, um, you know, what you just talked about is, is interesting. I always think about Buchanan as being obsessed with externalities. Right. You know, that, he like, is. His, his theory is obsessed with externalities. And that's the thing I think that a lot of the critics miss, Oh, boy. Uh, you know, in, in a massive way. The other thing I was gonna mention to you, which I think is is relates to the earlier question, was Jim was quite comfortable, as was Knight, I think, in um, recognizing fundamental ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Like tonight, a lot of these fundamental questions, you know, the justification of profit or any of these, these deep questions are ones of puzzles that are eternal and never ending. That's why, you know, I kid around all the time. I say, you know, Frank Knight, when I read them I'm left with three impressions, right? This is the smartest man that ever did economics. This is the most arrogant man that ever did economics. This is the most confused man that ever did economics. <laughs> and all three of them sort of fit in a, in a kind of a weird way, right? Yeah. The reality is, is that Knight, the one thing you can never accuse Knight of not being is someone who thought seriously about difficult problems. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he made very simple things become difficult, like, for example, <laughs> equilibrium. Or, you know, choice under uncertainty, or you know, these other kinds of, of you know issues, or the nature of democracy and nationalism. Okay. And you know, all the, I mean, so it, it, it ranged quite broadly. And Jim did the same thing. I, you know, I, I'm sitting in his class in 1984, and he's trying to explain in front of the class how there's a different concept of equilibrium than we've done. And now he and Coase one time we're walking along the lawn at UVA and they're trying to talk about equilibrium concept. That's like a series of rubber bands that is like continually snapping, but still stays in order. You know, I'm 20, you know, what, three years old or whatever at the time. And I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, I know what equilibrium is. That's the intersection of supply and demand is system of simultaneous equations. And he's talking about something else, but that comes out later in his paper with Vanberg on the market as a creative process and you know it's it's really it's in uh, what should economists do yeah. you know, again going back to you you know think about his argument i mean again i'm talking to experts here but i just it just dawns on I me mean, this whole vining koopmans thing and this discovery aspect think about the way jim thinks about utility functions yeah right utility yeah. functions can't be treated as fixed and given Right. Right. right they have to be in fact what you know they they emerge out of our our behavior which yeah. is yeah
3: that's just finding that yeah. really is just vining isn't it yeah i mean that was the one of the um now i wish i would have i wish i would have thought of that because uh Vanberg i went to the i went to i actually got out of the house i went to the public choice meeting in in jordan and i thought oh and one of the one of the really interesting criticisms from from Vanberg was um we didn't deal with jim's subjective stuff and i think darn I wish I, would said, I wish I would have thought yeah that hey that's just vining we dealt with it you just don't yeah. see that we dealt with it <laughs> well i didn't see that we dealt with it either so there's a video. Yeah but no but that's but that's got to be right and that <laughs> jim's subjective to discover utility hell, it's just vining it's just vining mod too
1: yeah
3: and that um i mean Elaine's review of the book was i mean he, he stressed that how important it is that we picked up vining
1: yeah. the
3: vining you know and there, there's been this tendency to overlook vining now you don't have that tendency because you were you know in a student but from outside um from from from, from outside um i think that people don't get vining nearly as well as people from inside
1: well he's dense right yeah. he's a he's a dense writer and so it's yeah. not easy to pick up on it yeah. and uh, you know I mean, you're the one who alerted me to the uh, UNESCO pamphlet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then you realize, I mean, I'm going to come back. this, But you realize, like, for example, that UNESCO pamphlet is something that also Rothbard, like, highlighted on and said, like, this is the way we have to go forward in economics. And anyway, so Uh, um,
3: there's always there's a connection there that you might have missed. And that Rothbard was very close to Arthur Burns. Yep. yeah. And in a funny way that Rothbard couldn't get his, his doctorate until Burns left. Right? right. Because not because of ideology or anything like that, but because because Burns thought Rothbard could do a better job. And so he kept his feet in the fire yeah. and then Burns went off to do the council and then Rothbard. Get. But so that it's. Vining is a great defender of the National Bureau. And so that the, you know, anybody who's that close to Burns is going to be really close to Vining. And so there's a, and when we went, when we went up and, and, and talked to Dick Ware, one of the things Ware went, this explained to us was how important Arthur Burns was to the movement. Yeah. this. And when we told Jim that, uh, Jim just got livid, he? Because Burns is just the devil because it kept away the balanced budget and all that stuff. Right. whatever. But um, but the Burns connection is really deep because it hooks in Rothbard, it hooks in Vining, and as well as Friedman and Stigler, oh, sorry, and yeah. so yeah. And, and so that. You know, the, so that it was really it was really helpful for us to talk to where because that made us sensitive to all sorts of wherever Arthur Burns is there, and so when you think, okay, who defended the National Bureau from against Kubermozg? Well, obviously that's Vining, and so okay, so the National Bureau was there who. You know, when Stigler writes his autobiography, he talks about being a member of two schools, one of the Chicago School one's the National Bureau. Right. And so that, you know, so that, you know, we were really lucky to talk to Ware because he told us things that we would not have understood. I mean, the first thing he did was read this wonderful little note from, um, uh, to, to, uh, from from Rostow to, to 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 Nutter and you just wonder, and my, my teachers at Berkeley just hated Rostow and, and so that I never looked at this book and you look at the book and say, oh this is Warren Nutter how about that and they say wait a second wait a second Rostow's an advisor to President Kennedy and Nutter's
1: yeah.
3: not <laughs> right. How's that well they're not it's not
1: political. right And I think that's one of the real things that's you know, Uh, very it comes out very uh, important in your book and I hope that it doesn't I hope it really gets highlighted which is this issue about that given these two views that once you have these two views there's methodological analytical commitments and then in a very far away version these ideological commitments but anyone only sees them as these ideological commitments like one of the things that I thought was really important in your um, in your book was laying out what they meant by a free society, a society that emerges from discussion. So then all of a sudden, you, uh, uh, you, know, you realize that when Buchanan is uh, you know, uh, talking about these issues about a society that exhibits neither discrimination nor domination, what he's invoking is this older Republican notion of democracy by discussion, not by debate, You know, not rule by experts, but rule from, you know, the people, that people are people and all those things follow. But there's a way you do economics that follows from that, that is different from the way you do economics if you don't have that view. And so when I read the original documents, you know, of of the Thomas Jefferson Center, all I see is Buchanan and Nutter are challenging the Samsonian post-World War II consensus, and they are going to stand up to it and say, we're going to fight it. Yeah. And I remember reading in the, in the archives a rejection that Jim got from the QJE. And Arthur Smithies is the uh, editor. And he says to Buchanan that his piece deserves to be published somewhere. And the way he describes Buchanan's piece is that quaint market fundamentalism position. So when they saw it, they didn't see this other view. They just saw it as, oh, you're this market fundamentalist against us, the more sophisticated economists." And, you know, again, you know, there's all these things going on. And, and, you know, your book is so pregnant to me about ways you could go. So I was just thinking, you know, Jim's whole book on, uh, you know, the public principles of the public debt, because the reason is, is that he's attacking the issue of he's defending the vulgar view of the man on the street against these new economists yeah. that are viewing it in a different way. And yeah. it's because the man on the street understands the exchange aspects of all of this. And, uh, you know, whereas the, the economist right. is understanding the expert yeah, use right. the, the steering wheel, you know, kind of idea, right? And yeah. so it relates here, I guess that the documents that you provide about Buchanan and Nutter that they were up to was an effort of a scientific revolution in the wake of the Sandersonian uh, sort of ascendancy or he- hegemony in the 1940s, 50s and, and onward. Um, so, and you conclude the book discussing this. So what do you think is the uh, lasting legacy of the Virginia school? And is there hope for a resurrection of the Virginia school, given the, the, the rents? Let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, we're in a kind of a a bunch of people now are beating their chest over economics for a variety of reasons. It's racism, it's sexism, it's elitism. And so you read a book like, uh, you know, Applebaum's book, The Economist Hour. And, you know, he says, time's up, you know, The Economist Hour's time's up. But then you dig a little deeper. And what does he think is the economist that's been running the economics profession for the last 30 years? Well, it's Milton Friedman, right? (laughs) It's like, that's who's running economics, right? And for those of us at George Mason, you know, who <laughs> share some of those those those, you know, moral commitments where we're kind of like, what the hell are they talking about? Like, you know, this isn't the world that we live in. But like they don't say that time's up. So, you know, that economists uh, that are of us other stripe are in charge. It's really like we want our team to be in charge, not the other team to be in charge, rather than no one should be in charge or no one should be given that platform as an economist. Yeah. And so, you know, and, 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 and so the economists must cease to pro-offer advice as if to a benevolent despot is true only if they're they're talking about markets rather than the other one. So how do you guys think of that? What is the hope that we might have for your last chapter Beyond just the intellectual clarity of of what the position is, do you see ways in which we can get into the conversation and change the profession?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question, and I know you're an optimist, so I'm going to start with the optimistic view, but then, <laughs> then then come to what might be more realistic. But um, you know, I love your optimism, um, and and you know, I think what we tried to lay out and what I think you perhaps agree with is that there's, you know, they, the Virginia school offers a different way of doing economics and, and really one that does go back to, to Smith, um, has a long history of, um, you know, some very, uh, interesting, um, uh, minds who dealt, delved into these problems. So an alternative way of doing economics, one that's not all that widespread, um, not appealing to experts, <laughs> perhaps, or less appealing to experts. Um, but a, you know, a, a, just a series of fascinating research questions. Um, the difficulty is gaining traction uh, within the profession. Um, so you know, all of the most of the people we've talked about today are out of favor and have been out of favor for a long time for various reasons, not just. Ideological, um, but methodological, and so on. And so, you know, reviving those ways of doing economics uh, when the profession has has left them behind. So um, has so largely left them behind. You know, putting aside some areas like George Mason, where uh, there there is still real interest in in this way of doing economics. Um, You know, Buchanan was one of the things we stress is he was something of an institution builder, not something up. He was an institution builder. Uh, And so, you know, you need you need the energy to build those institutions. And and I guess where I get less optimistic is, um, you know, it's very hard to um, to 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 change the profession if the top 15 schools control the appointments and, um, you know, at other good schools and so on. So it's just, it, you know, Mason can make inroads, um, but that's one institution within, uh, you know, the Academy. Uh, and it's, uh, as I said, it's hard to, it's hard to really get a lot of traction. Um, but if, if there's a way to tell our story so that, those who are opposing economics as it's done now can come to understand that we're not about, um, you know, rapacious self-interest and, um, uh, well, to a large extent, you know, um, uh, only limited government, uh, then, you know, perhaps some of the, those who are opposing us, at least on the edges, will come to understand that, uh, you know this that not all economics is the economics they're criticizing yeah.
0: thank you for listening to the hayek program podcast to learn more about the research scholars and work of the hayek program visit hayek.mercatus.org for more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at mason as well as at universities across the globe please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.